This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 71. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now, your host, Kristen Trumpy. So, today we welcome Randy. Randy, who are you? And... How did you come to the Positive Psychology Podcast? Well, my name is Randy Patterson. I'm a psychologist in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. Um, and I'm the author of the book, How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use. Perhaps the opposite direction to the kinds of things that you are ordinarily talking about in the Positive Psychology Podcast. Right. Yeah. I, I had to think about that. And... Um, I decided that sometimes it's best to think about things in a different way because then we might have other insights than we normally have. So Tolstoy said that all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. What do you think? Was he on to something? In a sense, no, I don't think so. I think that there are specific ways that people become miserable in our culture. There are many of them, and so it can look diverse, but in fact they are innumerable, or they can be enumerated. Uh, there are a number of them, but they can be enumerated. You can find out what they are, um, at least some of the most common ones. Um, most of us would have some individual ways that we make ourselves um, miserable that our neighbors do not, um, but uh, but many of the many of the strategies are quite common from person to person. Right. So with happiness, people often say like, "Oh, that's something my grandmother already knew." Uh, is that the case with unhappiness? Do we know what makes us unhappy? I think to some extent we do. Um, we are not necessarily aware that we are using these strategies. Typically things come about, we begin adopting the sort of miserable lifestyle, if you like, um, when we are already in a period of low mood. Something uncontrollable has happened, uh, something that's not you know, within our range of uh, ability to cope with or uh, do anything about. And um, our mood has dropped, and at that point it changes a variety of things. You know, clinical depression, which is really not the primary subject of this book, but clinical depression is often thought of as a mood disorder, which is really not true. It's not a mood disorder. It's a disorder of emotion, yes, but also thinking and behavior and of the body. And one of the things that's often not talked about that much is it's a, it's a change in our motivational structure. So ordinarily, when we're feeling well, you know, the thought of that barbecue tonight might be a wonderful thing. Um, but when we're depressed, we'll rather spend our time alone at home. Um, the thought of going out or being around other people would be a good thing. Normally, during depression, our motivation sh switches and we're motivated to stay at home. So it seems as though the behaviors that we do that are making us more miserable are actually the result of our bad mood. But what we're not too conscious of is the fact that they are also contributing to causing it. Right. So if we take this approach, we are 
I mean, you're diving into it. You're saying like, let's dive into misery. Let's get good at misery. But is avoiding unhappiness the same as pursuing happiness? Well, Martin Seligman didn't think so. He suggested that by alleviating depression or alleviating misery, um, we thought that we would lead to instant happiness, but instead we led, led to blankness and no emotion at all. Um, there are some things that seem to help alleviate depression, but don't actually make us particularly happy, and other things that make us happy, but don't seem to alleviate depression very much. There are many others, however, that seem to operate across the full spectrum of emotional experience. So wherever you start out, um, doing some of these things can lift you or lower you if you adopt them. Right. So what's your strategy, so to speak, to deal with this? Or, well, or let, you know what? Hang on. Before we got into it, you said we adopt a, a lifestyle of misery. Mm. It sounded like something that's fairly predictable. Or did I, did I interpret too much into that? Not necessarily. Um, but when I'm uh, assessing somebody who's unhappy with their life, they might have clinical depression or they might just have a sense that, you know, their life is just not very interesting or the, the air seems to have gone out of it. Um, I'll uh, do the assessment. At the end of the assessment, I'll ask a strange question. I'll say, well, let's imagine we kidnap the next 10 people who cross in front of this building and we'll give them your life. We'll give them your job, your sleep schedule, the amount of exercise you get. We'll give them your diet, your mother, your mother-in-law, uh, your relationships, your amount of social contact, uh, your television watching schedule. We'll have them do precisely what you do every moment of every day and we'll leave them there for a month. At the end of a month, we'll see how they're doing. And uh, so what do you think? And clients will typically say, well, I, I think that they would be depressed. And, and I would say, about as depressed as you, a little more, a little less. They say, oh, I don't know, it's hard to say, about as depressed. And so what that allows me to do is to say, yes, I think you're probably right. I don't know if they'd be quite as depressed as you. They might be, they might be a little bit more, but they would be discouraged by their life. And so what the emotion that you're experiencing in this moment may actually be kind of normal. As a consequence of that, what we do not need to do necessarily is keep your life exactly the way it is and have you feel wonderful about it, because maybe that would be making you abnormal. Instead, what we could do is work on changing your life, and it's possible that your emotions would shift in some direction uh, all by itself, all, all by themselves, all automatically. So, what so I'm not sure if that answers the question. <laughs> oh, I love the answer, and I love bizarre stuff. So I, I like these unexpected questions. Do you personally, do you think if someone would take over your life, how would that turn out for them? Like your habits, not, I don't want to be personal here, but like your habits, the stuff that you implement. Well, I think in general, um, people would find it actually quite a good life. Um, however, everybody experiences periods of upswing and periods of downswing. I notice, for example, in my own life, if I'm feeling low and lacking energy and enthusiasm for things, the last thing I feel like doing is exercising. 
And if I take a step back from myself and look at myself and think, okay, so what's this about? How did this come about? I suddenly realize, well, wait a minute. It's been three or four weeks and I haven't really gotten much exercise. So this feeling of wanting to avoid exercise is actually a secret signal to me that that's precisely what I need to be doing. And so I may need to look at my motivations, look at what I want, and in some respects, do the exact opposite. So why is our inner, like, whatever system it is, that the, the impulses, why do they work against us? What do you think? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, I think all of the emotions evolved in primitive environments that we no longer live in. And so they don't necessarily serve us. Um, if we feel angry, for example, this is motivating us and enabling us to, you know, go attack somebody, go hit them, uh, hit them hard, knock them out. Uh, you know, go uh, defeat the neighboring tribe, that kind of thing. Well, today, if you're irritated by your boss or your neighbor, doing that will not serve you. Our body is reacting as a primitive being, um, and it's pointing us in directions that may not be helpful. It is possible that depressed mood was similar and that it was useful at one point, that if circumstances had created that emotional state, then withdrawal to the cave, if you like, would be, uh, would be useful, would help in some way, would help you regroup. If we withdraw to our caves here in the modern world, uh, typically... So, yeah. Okay, you can go now. Thanks. In the past, if we were sad, it might be useful, for example, in some way to retreat to the cave and uh, regroup and uh, get our energy back, that kind of thing. In the modern world, if we retreat to our caves, um, we seem to make the depression even worse or make the low mood even worse if we're not clinically depressed. Um, so it's not helpful. These things point us in the wrong direction. Often what we need to do with our emotions then is notice them, notice the direction they're pointing us in, and in many cases, turn around and do the opposite thing. Are there any differences between introverts and extroverts? Because for me personally, I, I feel that it does help me to spend a few days inside and then because it gives me energy. And then I'm kind of ready to go back into the world. What do you think? Or is that more of an outlier that's just me thing? Or is that maybe, are there maybe differences between people's, I don't know, temperaments or otherwise preferences? Well, I think there are differences in temperament. And um, I think that we have a problem in our culture right now in that the field of personality is being eaten by the field of psychopathology so that a person who has differences is now being seen as uh, has something wrong with them whereas we used to say no that's that's actually called personality and and people are different um, and I think the former strategy or the former way of viewing things is actually more more accurate possibly uh, less profitable but more accurate and helpful for people um, so one of the things to do, I think, is to become uh, knowledgeable about ourselves, to have a kind of external observer of ourselves and notice what is it that actually seems helpful in our own case. And so often what we do is we guide our behavior based on 
well, what, what do I feel like doing? You know, I feel kind of crummy right now. What do I feel like doing? And often the answer is, oh, well, I kind of feel like staying home. I kind of feel like canceling out on my plans. I kind of feel like turning the television on or surfing the internet randomly for five hours. Uh, that's what I feel like doing. What's often better is to look uh, retrospectively and say, well, when I have done that in the past, how have I wound up feeling? And it turns out often that many of my temptations in advance turn out not to work out so well. What's actually helped me is to do something different. If in your case, your own experience is that withdrawing and spending some time on your own, getting your own projects done and you know, pulling back from a lot of social commitment, if that helps, great. Um, it's not a question of so much of whether it's tempting, but has it actually so? Then use that knowledge. Right. I, li I like that you distinguish that way. So, like, like, I'm thinking in hypothetical. So, if we are good at being unhappy, like if somebody really dives into your book and they're like, yes, I, I see the point of it, and I'll just, even if it's just for a month, I'll, I'll be a little bit of a contrarian. If they master, you know, being unhappy really well, doesn't that trigger positive emotions and a sense of mastery and mess it all up? Well, I think what might trigger positive emotions is realization that this actually is under your control in some respects. The, um, the exercise, which is, you know, what if you didn't want to be happier, what if you wanted to be worse, uh, actually came out of a depression group that we ran uh, at UBC Hospital for many years, uh, myself and others. And uh, people often felt in depression that they had absolutely no control over their, their emotional state. And we said, and if you tried to convince people, well, maybe if you did this, you'd feel a little better. Maybe if you did that, you'd feel a little better. That was a really hard sell. But if we asked them, if you, for some bizarre reason, wanted to feel worse, what would you do? Then they could come up with ideas. And in the process, they realized, actually, they did have some control over their emotional state. They could be worse if they, for some bizarre reason, wanted that. And that seemed a bit of a lift. It didn't necessarily free up the positive direction, but it showed that at least theoretically they had some control, and I think that did uh, uh, lead to at least a, a micro boost in mood, if you like. Right, so you never had any patients or clients where you thought like, whoa, they're taking this too seriously and they're getting too good at, I don't know, eating the wrong stuff and not never exercising, and you never experienced that? Not really, no. I think the subtitle of the book says it all. Uh, the subtitle is 40 Strategies You Already Use. And so the book is really uh, a kind of 1970s-style consciousness-raising effort where you try to go through the book and we're looking for a sense of recognition. It's like, oh, right, I do this and I do this and I do this. And maybe my dissatisfaction with my life is not such a total mystery. Maybe it's partly, yes, the uncontrollable weird things that have happened to me, but it's partly some of the choices I've made. And if I've made these choices, possibly I could make different ones and have a different outcome. 
Right. So um, are you on board with exploring some of those strategies? Sure. Absolutely. Can you give us a few examples? Maybe some which are not that straight. Like I'm get, I think most can guess if you don't. We talked about exercising or eating junk food every single day. We know that from Supersize Me. That doesn't turn out well. But do you have any? Yeah, you must have like 38 others. So what about those? Yes. Well, um, I'll, I'll pick a couple at random, although they will feel like they are um, pretty scattered as a result. One is um, to abide by the values of our culture and uh, try and be very well informed about things. Um, we have, uh, in cognitive therapy, we have the idea of a negative filter. You know, good things happen to you, bad things happen to you, and fairly neutral things happen. Well, one strategy for becoming more miserable is pay attention only to the negative things and ignore the positive things, ignore the neutral things altogether. Right? So that's a cognitive strategy for making yourself more miserable. Just divert your attention onto the things that are going to lead you downward. But you can also kind of subcontract this negative filter. It doesn't have to be your own negative filter. You can create a network of reporters all over the earth whose job it is to collect the bad news and present it to you in explicit detail with gory pictures right on your television or right on your computer all the time. So a tremendous number of people are, in effect, news addicts and are constantly being kind of um, hmm, low-grade traumatized, I suppose, by uh, the repetitive presentation of all of the awful news on the planet. Very hard to do that and not ultimately get the sense that, my gosh, the entire world is awful because all I hear about are bus crashes. I never hear about any buses that reach their destination in a kind of boring way. So, one strategy, pay attention to the news. Watch it a lot and try and be as well informed as you can. A second strategy, just uh, forget the news and just filter your own experience. Only look at the negative. Another, um, I think, is to try and fit in. To try and um, identify what does the world expect of you? What does it want of you? And just do that. Um, take your uniqueness. Uh, take the things that are unusual about you and really try to hide them, right? So don't, don't, don't display those to the world. They're unacceptable. Hide those away. Your uniqueness is the only thing that you have all to yourself, and it's the one thing that most human beings want most desperately to get rid of. So you should do that and instead try to find out what's socially acceptable, what's, you know, the normal thing for people to be doing and do that as much as possible. So in effect, being a conformist would be a third strategy. I, love I don't that know. One. <laughs> I love that one. That's, that's a good one. Yeah. There was a man by the name of Quentin Crisp who was uh, English and moved to America in his 70s, a very interesting individual who wrote a number of books on this subject. He viewed personality not as something that was inherent to us and expressed. He viewed personality as an art form. It is something that is constructed, that we actually build ourselves. 
And in, on this line, this chapter of the book, I actually uh, reference him quite a lot. And he was talking about fashion and style. Fashion is, uh, as he put it, what you do when you don't know who you are. You abide by somebody else's standards and you uh, present yourself in a way that uh, somebody who doesn't know you uh, has decided that all people should present themselves in. Style is the opposite. A lot of us think fashion and style are exactly the same thing. Style is actually an opposite. Style is taking what's unique about you and bringing that to the fore rather than filing it off and trying to become one of the crowd. I like that you made that last distinction because otherwise it could come off as, you know, people who like clothes and stuff like that are just, you know, shallow and that's the wrong way. But no, you, you say style that is something that's unique, that is about you, and there's nothing wrong with liking these things. It's a, what, what is a strategy to be miserable is to just follow what everybody else wants, basically. I like that a lot. Exactly. Uh, you know, some people who are socially anxious, really in the back of their mind when they go into a clothing store, is they want the clothing that makes them invisible, that makes them, you know, so nobody will remember they were there. Um, and the suggestion is maybe you could do something a little bit different than that. A lot of us are also trying to, you know, shave off the, the parts of ourselves that we don't like, you know, uh, whether it has to do with weight or height or some other characteristic. And, and uh, Chris would have said, absolutely not. So if you're, if you're very tall, um, you know, wear heels, for goodness sake. And if you're short, be short, don't wear heels. Uh, he was quite doctrinaire on that point. <laughs> That's an interesting one. So do you have any real-life stories about what happened to a person, maybe a transformation, something along those lines? Well, I think that um, a lot of people, particularly socially anxious people, recognize that they've lived their entire lives trying to be um, invisible, whether it's in their choice of clothing or in the choice of career. They're trying to do what's acceptable. They're trying to follow what their parents wanted them to do, what their colleagues or mentors wanted. And um, it really hasn't been that satisfying. Often this is what the midlife crisis comes from. They, you know, they feel like the air is leaking out of their life and suddenly it all just seems kind of boring and unenthusiastic. Um, but I've had quite a number of people try to go back and say, well, at some point in your life when you had some passion, what were you interested in? What were the kinds of things that charged you up? Uh, I'll give you one example. Uh, a gentleman in one of our groups uh, was very duty-oriented and, you know, one of these constant workers. And perhaps as a result of that, his marriage had split up. And he had uh, weekend custody of his son, and he was trying to figure out what to do with his son. Um, and uh, they, the, the group, you know, suggested different things. And eventually we, we got him to regress to his own childhood. And what did he like doing? Well, he liked flying kites. And so we thought, well, maybe my son would like that. I don't know, but I know something about them, so I can do that. So we took his son out flying kites. And then the group assigned him another exercise, which was to go flying kites without his son. And at that point, he began recognizing, okay, well, that's a little bit of the old passion coming back. And having accessed that, he could access it in other areas of his life. He could recognize it more readily. 
Right. So are there, you know, contrary to what we talked about a little bit earlier, you talked about strategies which seem like tempting in the short run, but they're negative in the long run. Are there any opposites? So are there any strategies that make us miserable in the short run, but have positive effects in the long run? Uh, yes, our strategies that don't feel tempting, uh, you know, making a nutritious meal for yourself just feels kind of blah and flat. For most people, the thought of going to the gym today is not something that charges you up. That's just, oh, I don't want to do that. I have little enough energy as it is. The thought of calling up your friends and thinking, out, okay, what could we do this weekend? Is there some way that we could get together? What would you do? Oh, wait a minute. We could see that movie. Oh, I don't want to see that movie. I've seen it already. And then all of that fussing to try and figure out what you're going to do with your friends, no appeal whatsoever. It feels like you're, you know, pulling your way through molasses to try and get yourself to do it. And then once you've done it, it's actually helpful. As a matter of fact, I think that many of the things in most people's lives that actually benefit them the most are the things that have no appeal in the moment when you're trying to initiate them. Okay. So is there anything you want our listeners to think about that we haven't talked about yet? Well, I would suggest whether you uh, rush out and buy the book or not, simply to uh, take an exercise, uh, do something for 10 minutes, ideally 20, and do it only if you have in front of you paper and pen. And what you would do is ask yourself, most of your life you have had the agenda of making choices that will pay off in the long run, that will make you feel better. You turned on that television show because you thought you'd enjoy it, and so on. Almost everything you do is designed to make yourself feel better. So for 10 or 20 minutes, ask yourself, what would I do if it was my mi mission in life to make myself more miserable? And it feels foolish. It feels stupid. I don't want to make myself feel miserable. I'm miserable enough. Thank you very much. And yet, if you do that, you will almost invariably discover something about yourself. What? Well, I don't know. It will be something unique to you. But you can begin recognizing that you're making at least some choices that are leading downhill rather than up. Right. I like this a lot. And in fact, I just decided that what I'll do after I hang up on you is I'll take 10 minutes and do that. And then I'll add that to the recording. Great. So, yeah, let's see what happens. I don't know if I'll have a big breakthrough or not. Um, I already really put a lot of if effort into intentionally structuring my life, but who knows? I might come up with something crazy that I could, you know, make myself more miserable. Cool. Well, Thank you very much, Randy. Is there anything what? else you'd like to share? Yeah, for example, tell me real slow the book title again and the subtitle and where people can get it. Sure. The title of the book is How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use. It's in many bookstores in North America already. Uh, it's available on Amazon.com, Amazon.ca. And the British release of the book will be June 30th, I believe, um, when, it, when it comes out. And it's from New Harbinger Publications. Congrats of, uh, for crossing the pond. That's not something that necessarily happens all the time, if I'm right. So 
Congrats well, for that. See if, we'll see if it sells there. <laughs> Hope so. Good luck with that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Randy. You're welcome. Okay. As promised, I did the exercise. I took 10 minutes to brainstorm 10 minutes to misery, I call them. All right. So if you want to do it, do it now. Otherwise, you will be influenced by my answers. I came up with 27 points and yeah, it was surprisingly hard. Usually when I brainstorm, I could do more in 10 minutes than that. But maybe it's not such a bad thing that my brain was a bit startled and it's like, are you sure this is what you want to think about? But here we go. Here are my 27 ways to be more miserable. Number one, work longer hours in the corporate world. Now, I understand that to some of you that might sound a little bit cynical and you might think like, well, yes, the rich bitch in Switzerland, she can afford to not work 100%. I definitely cannot. And I'm not here to judge any of your situations. However, I beg the question, how is it possible that regardless of whether you're a surgeon or you work at McDonald's, somehow everybody has to work at least 42 hours or more like 50 hours a week. How is it that despite the tremendous progress that the world has made, you have to remember that back in the days we didn't have computers, we didn't have a lot of things that all aid what we're trying to do, but yet somehow miraculously Almost every task takes 42 to 50 hours a week. Isn't that weird? And isn't it weird that regardless of whether you earn, you know, I don't know, $1,500 a month or $12,000 a month, somehow everybody thinks that it's the, the minimum amount they need. That's weird. If you think about it, it's really strange. So I know that not everybody can do that. But I also know that people are often not ready to make the sacrifice. They're scared. And they think like, well, what if I don't have this money for this and that? And I get it. If you, if you have a mortgage, if you have huge you know, tuition fees, we're lucky here, at least in Switzerland, we don't have those tuition fees, we don't have the student debt. So yes, maybe I might be at an advantage. But then again, if you look at the developing world, there are millions of people who earn less than you do. So yeah, let's think about that one. Now, by the way, I will not talk that long about each of the 27 points. But I wanted to set this one off right. Number two, Complain about everything that pisses me off and do this repeatedly. Number three, voice every mean thought that crosses my mind. Number four, stop moving. Number five, spend no time looking at nature or being in nature. Number six, never walk. Number number seven, learn everything there is to learn about terrorists and stay abreast current developments in torturing and killing people. Eight, Think about corrupt politicians and businesses as often as possible. Number nine, never pick up anything and just let the mess pile over everywhere. I used to do this. I mean, 
nothing rotted and died or something. But yeah, I used to be pretty bad at that. Got better now. Number 10, sell my e-piano. 11, never write. 12, stop listening to music. 13, tell myself that I'm too busy to read or listen to podcasts and audiobooks. 14, squeeze myself into fashionable and appropriate clothes. 15, bathe in self-righteousness as often as possible. That is one of my strategies. Not as often as possible, but that is a tried and tested strategy that I use to be miserable. 16, never watch soccer because it's just a game. 17, assume that every ambivalent thing someone says or does is because they don't like you. 18, ignore the birds singing outside. 19, talk to people about every little ailment I feel like. Right now, I'm feeling a little bit of pressure in my neck, and maybe there's a little blackhead somewhere, and actually, by the way, something is itching somewhere. Yeah, I could do that all day long. 20, never travel. 21, always run around doing errands, and when I'm done with the errands, invent new ones. 22, never reflect about what's going on. 23, have important uh, conversations and make important decisions when I'm sleep-deprived and hungry. 24, don't let sunlight touch my skin. 25, stop hugging and touching people. 26, encourage people to complain more. And 27, ignore my inner voice. What about you? What are your strategies to make yourself miserable? Come on, beat me. We have two more reviews. The first one is from the US and it's by Joel WG Thanks from USA. And it says, I love this podcast. I never write reviews, but I felt this one deserved one. It has many techniques, exercises and lessons to increase the positivity towards one's lives. Tremendous effort. I'm very thankful to listen to these. Thank you very much, Joel. I, I'm honored. I I get that. Yeah, I see that. How people just don't ever... It doesn't even occur to most people probably to write a re- review. And I'm especially grateful to those review virgins of all of you. Uh, and of course, Joel himself. And then there's a review from Japan. And that's by Shari Ware or Wire. I'm not sure. Sorry, I think I butchered your butchered your last name. Sorry, I don't know what's going on with my pronunciation. I think all my blood is in my legs right now. So it says, Kristen is so chilled. It's like listening to a best friend give you advice. I only found this podcast a week ago, and since then I've been listening to it religiously. It's the first thing I put on in the mornings while I get ready to start my day. As a psychology student taking a break from academia, it's a great way for me to also stay connected to the field. I really love this podcast. It should surely help me in my personal growth. Thank you so much for being such a beautiful soul. Thank you, Shari or Shari. I am very happy that it's always cool when peers comment. You know, I mean, it's it's wonderful to introduce people who don't have any idea about psychology or or have very little background. But it's also very special if people from the field 
say that they can benefit from it. So thank you very, very much. And I also like the fact that you listen to it in the morning. That's when I listen to other people's podcasts. So it's kind of cool to know that I have the same status as some of my heroes. So yeah, thank you very much. Now, for those of you who are still on the fence about Audible, don't worry. You know, it might be that you might need some time or you just never got around to it. But if you never got around to it, but you actually love books and you don't have the time to read them, then why not try the audiobooks? I can personally promise that Audible will not make a big deal out of it if you, let's say, you try it out and then it's not for you. I've had that as well. Not because Audible was not for me, but because one country store was not for me, right? So I accidentally signed up once. I'm not sure for which country store. And that was just not for me because it was the wrong language selection and all of that. And then I got out of it. No problem. They never bothered me again. And if you decide to do that, if you decide to check out Audible through strengthsphoenix.com slash Audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E, you do me the great favor of paying one month of hosting for Libsyn for this psychology podcast. So that will be awesome. And if not, no worries. I'm working on other ways. So those of you who want to show their appreciation can, but don't have to in this particular way. All right. I'm off to watching some soccer. The European Championships are on. And also, I know that the Copa America is on. Um, Good luck to the team, whoever you support. I am in the Copa America. I have to admit that I am supporting Colombia because I was in Colombia last year. And I just loved their performance at the last World Cup. Hey, guys. Guys and girls, do you think I should have one of these sign-off phrases? If you have a fun idea, why not send me your suggestion through Twitter? I'm at Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, T-R-U-E-M, as in mother, P-Y. Let me know what you think I should sign off with. Looking forward to any ideas, if you have any. It will be fun, and otherwise, I'll just keep doing this absolutely randomly and very, how shall I put this, not exactly originally. All right, have a great week, and talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.